Please turn with me to your study outlines. As you turn, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online, and also our friends at the Hangar in Montana, and also in Arco, Idaho, and also Purpose Church in Rancho Cucamonga. We are so glad uh, that you are joining us today for our study of God's Word. As you're turning, let me just challenge us three ways we can be used by God to connect our friends to Jesus in the month of March. Three strategic ways. Probably the two best months of the year, particularly the way Easter falls this year, are December and March. Those are the two best months of the year to connect our friends with Jesus. The first one we already mentioned with regard to Easter, and uh, Dave East gets the award for the first uh, Easter lawn sign up in his lawn. And he emailed me this, uh, this to me, and I want you to do the same. Uh, be as creative as you can with posters, with um, bumper stickers, uh, with lawn signs. Be as creative as you can. Don't get arrested for anything, okay? But anything short of getting arrested, although that would be good publicity. And so I'm not, you know, they say there is no bad publicity. And so uh, just uh, get those things everywhere. Number two, Mark Middleberg, tremendous message a few weeks ago, 20 reasons why Christianity is true. Get your friends to go online to see that message. Or if it's more convenient, we've made a bunch of CDs for a dollar a piece out at the resource center for you to take and to give to a friend 20 reasons why Christianity is true. Now we come to the Gospel of John, John chapter 7. Praise God for Pastor Brian. Didn't he do a great job last Sunday? I tell you, I, 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 when I got, I, I woke up Saturday just so sick. And, and you know, men get sicker than women do. You know that's a medical fact, right? You know, I can say that because a bunch of the women, hundreds of them are at the women's retreat this weekend, so I can get by, including my wife, Kimberly, so I can say that. But, you know, I, I just woke up so sick on Saturday. And it was amazing. I, I, I love this when God does this, when you can feel God saying, ah, you're not in the game. You sit the bench, Gunderson, Holland's in the game uh, today, or Holland's pitching uh, today. It was just like that, because as soon as I gave it over to Brian and called him up, I felt much better. And uh, every day I just went on. It was kind of like God saying, you know, just smite him until he get out, get get the out of the way so Brian can do his thing, you know. And so it's just just awesome. And I love how um, somebody was saying to me uh, earlier, they said, boy, what a deep bench we have around here. And it is absolutely true, because the funny thing is, Brian preaches for me last Sunday morning. Then he gets sick Sunday afternoon. Brian got sick Sunday afternoon. So Pastor Eric, our high school pastor, had to cover for him at flood on Thursday night. So I, Brian covers for me, Eric covers for Brian, so Brian could get well, so he could preach at Hume Lake this weekend. And we were joking that the full circle would be as if I had covered for Eric at high school on Wednesday night. But they were doing a, a panel on sex, and I didn't want any part of that. And so I left that up with uh, Eric in order to, to, to handle that. But at any rate, you know, it reminds me of a few years ago, it just made me nostalgic, how the Lord kind of works people around. It's kind of like in, in the NFL, they say next man up, and it's kind of like next preacher up. And I could really feel that. I remember a few years back, um, Kimberly and I, the weekend before 9-11, were, were speaking at a marriage conference in New York. And we weren't going to fly out of, of New York that Tuesday of, of 9-11 because we were going to drive down to Washington, D.C. I was going to do the wedding for a nephew. And then we were going to fly back in time for church. Well, then 9-11 hit. And all flying was stopped, if you remember that. And so I was stuck. It was the most important Sunday of the year, probably in my lifetime. The Sunday after 9-11, churches were packed. 
and it was just this opportune moment, and I'm stuck 3,000 miles away on the other coast planning the service on my cell phone from the Washington Mall and sitting there on the Washington Mall with all the great buildings around and, and making this. And so Chris Brown, remember Chris Brown, called him up said, Chris, you're up. I'm stuck on the East Coast here because of 9-11, and God just used him in a magnificent way. And so I just love how the Lord orchestrates things for his purpose to build the body of Christ, and and just so honored to be all a part of that, and just praise God for how uh, our younger pastors are just so dynamic, and I just praise God for them. Now, I told uh, Brian, I said, you can preach on any passage except for John 7. That is the only one you cannot preach on. It was kind of like God with Adam and Eve in the garden. You can take of any fruit, but don't take of that one tree. So I told him anything but John 7, so he did it from Colossians. So now we come to John chapter 7. Now what's interesting is the next 15 chapters in John all cover the last six months of Jesus' life. So John, all the rest of the Gospels don't do it this way, but John really centers his Gospel on the last six months. So the first six chapters of John all have to do with the first two and a half years of Jesus' ministry, from the age of 30 to 32 and a half. But now from October to, uh, to April, the last six months of Jesus' life, these last 15 chapters of John, starting with John chapter 7, will be focused on those. Now from this point on, Jesus is going to be more and more severely mistreated until he is killed on the cross. And we, last time we were in John chapter 6, we saw the feeding of the 5,000 was the absolute peak of Jesus' popularity. But then he refused to be their general to lead them against Rome. He refused to merely provide physical bread for them. He said, I am the bread of life. I'm here for a bigger purpose, and that is to reconcile you with God so you can go to eternity for, uh, to heaven for eternity. And they didn't like that. And so from that point on, that was the peak of his popularity. Now over the next six months, he will become less and less popular. It will embolden the Jewish leaders to, kill, to take his life to the Pharisees and, and the leaders in the synagogue there. It'll embolden them to kill Jesus six months later. Now, Jesus knows what it's like to be mistreated. If you're mistreated in, in your life, you feel life has mistreated you, or you feel other people are mistreating you, Jesus can identify with you. He has been there. First of all, Jesus was threatened. It says in verse 1, after this, Jesus went around in Galilee. The Greek word here is in the perfect tense, which means continual action. And so he spends his time going from city to city, working miracles and teaching in the region of Galilee around the Sea of Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. We'll put the map up there. And so he stayed in the northern part in Galilee because the people that wanted to kill him were down in Jerusalem in Judea in the southern part of the nation of Israel. Uh, Jesus was ridiculed. It says, but verse 2, but then when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near. Now this is why we say it's in the last six months of Jesus' life. Because this uh, Feast of the Tabernacles, or call it the Feast of Tents, or the Festival of Tents, took place in the second week in October. So you're going to go the last six months. This uh, starts chapter 7 with the second week of October. It's going to go six months until the second week of, of, of April, which is when he was uh, killed on the cross and rose from the dead. This was one of the three feasts where all Jewish males within a 15-mile radius were required to attend. It was an eight-day celebration of wandering in the desert under Moses during the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness before they got to the promised land. Uh, Josephus, the great uh, Jewish historian, said it was the most popular feast of all. It was kind of like our Thanksgiving. 
It was joyful. It was the equivalent of family camp. How many of you like to camp or RV? And maybe some of you remember, this is really going back a number of years, but when I first came here, does anybody remember the family camps we used to have over Memorial Day weekend? Okay, it's awesome. Uh, I remember when we came here, we basically closed down church or made it a real minimal service on Memorial Day weekend. And we would all go to a campground and everybody would camp out together. And if you didn't have, you know, a trailer or a tent or anything, you would borrow one from somebody. And the whole church was like camping out together. And finally, we just got too big for any campground to handle. And so we had to discontinue it about 15 years ago. And we haven't done it since. But it was a wonderful time. And this is what's going on with the Feast of Tabernacles. It's like family camp. They would make tents or shelters on the hillsides or on their rooftops. And it would be a celebration of the first harvest in Israel, the promised land, after the wilderness wanderings. It was a celebration of moving from nomadic poverty. Because when you move around all the time, like nomads did, and like Israelites did in the, in the desert in those 40 years, you can't build prosperity. It's hard to become wealthy if you're a nomadic lifestyle. But instead, the affluence comes when they finally got to the harvest, to the promised land. They had their own land, and that's when they began to build wealth. And so it was a celebration of that was the festival of tabernacles or tents. Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works that you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Now, they mean this in a sarcastic way. Go to Jerusalem and show off your powers. Uh, they don't care if the Jews are going to kill him there. Can you imagine how that hurt Jesus? That his brothers didn't even care if he got killed. And they were sarcastic and they didn't believe in him. And we know the names of his four brothers in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. Uh, they, were the name, they were named after Israelite heroes from the Old Testament. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, or another form, was Jude. And I think one of the most powerful evidences for the resurrection. Uh, there are thousands of evidences for the resurrection. One of the most powerful is that Jesus' four brothers did not believe in him at this stage in their life, and later became followers of Jesus to the point of death. What could cause that change? Let me ask you a question. How many of you have brothers? How many of you have brothers? Can I see your hands? What would it take to get your brother to believe that you were the son or daughter of God? Okay? It would take a resurrection, wouldn't it? They're not going to buy into that. It would take a resurrection. And so James, the first one mentioned there, became pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He wrote the book of James in the New Testament. He was eventually martyred for his faith in Jesus. He died proclaiming the resurrection of his brother, Jesus Christ. Judas, another form of that is Jude, wrote the book of Jude in the Bible. Two of the 27 books in the New Testament were written by the brothers of Jesus. He was ridiculed by them, but after his resurrection, he became followed by them even to the point of death. Jesus was hated. Verse six, therefore Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. In the Greek, this word translated hate means detests with malicious feeling. Detests with malicious feeling. Why did the world hate him so much? Because I testify that its works are evil. The world hates Jesus uh, because he claimed to be God. 
The world hates Jesus because he says he's the only way to heaven. The world hates Jesus because he testifies that their works are evil. He said in John 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. He's the light of the world. He calls on us to be the light of the world. And whenever light shines in darkness, people hate that light. If you're in the middle of sleeping at three in the morning, somebody comes in and turns on the light. What is your reaction to that? We hate the light, don't we? If a burglar is about to break into your house and all of a sudden the automatic lights pop on, that burglar hates uh, that light. I want to show you a picture of the front lawn. It's called Blanchard Lawn, or we used to call it Front Campus of Wheaton College, which is my alma mater, uh, out near Chicago. And um, there used to be benches all across the, the front lawn. And what you would, you go to those benches with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, and you go at nighttime in order to pray or read your Bible together or whatever. At least, <laughs> at least that, that's what I did, you know, my girlfriend there. But, uh, you know, uh, but at any rate, I had to laugh because I, I looked at the picture. We were finding one for this morning. I said, there are no benches there anymore. I think they removed all the benches, you know. They cut out the root of evil and wickedness there on campus and cast it away. So John Burroughs, who's at the 830 service, uh, who's up here, announcement director of our choir, um, his son now is, is a junior at Wheaton College. I said, John, aren't you glad they removed those evil benches, uh, the wicked benches from my time? Well, anyway, uh, one night I was there with, with my girlfriend reading the Bible and praying together, having our devotions. And uh, there's this group on campus, uh, and it was a joke. It was meant to be a joke, but they called themselves the Cru Crusaders for Morality, and they would put ski masks on. There'd be like a bunch of four or five guys, and they'd all have big flashlights, and they would run out to guys and girls on the benches with their big lights shown on them, and then they would quote in unison 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, which says, it is not good for a man to touch a woman, and then they would re recite that in Paul, and, and they were just beloved on our campus. We, we just loved them so much. No, we, we hated them because they shone light on us in the darkness. And Jesus said, if the world hates you, if he's the light of the world, and if it hates me, it hated me first. That's why you as the light of the world, it hates you as well. Jesus was scrutinized. Verse eight, you go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. Uh, we have this a Greek word here, which means this is the, not the best time or the best opportunity for something to take place. Uh, Kairos is uh, the ministry, the prison ministry that many of our men are involved with here at the church. And Kairos comes from this word, uh, the perfect time, my time. It's not perfect, the time for this thing to be done, for me to go to Jerusalem. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. Now, this is so important. This is probably one of the biggest mistakes I've made in my Christian life. Um, <coughs> there's such a tendency that I have we have it here at church sometimes, maybe you can identify with this in your life, is that I have such a tendency to get a great idea, okay, and to run and start doing it, and then later on say, oh, by the way, God, would you bless this great idea I have, which I've already implemented. And there's a temptation for us to do that on church, not to wait for God to tell us what to do, but to run ahead and do stuff, and then later on ask God's blessing on that thing. And then he may or may not bless it because it may or may not be something he wants done. The far more effective thing is to wait on the Lord. Listen to his voice until you know 
there's something he wants you to do. Or you know there's something that God wants our church to do. And then go do that thing, and then it's good to pray for God's blessing, but you almost don't have to do it because it was his idea in the first place. So it will naturally carry his blessing with it. And so we see Jesus here. He's waiting for the Father's instructions. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, now it's time. He went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? He was scrutinized. Mark says that some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely. If you've ever had somebody watch you, just waiting to catch you and making a mistake so they could jump all over you, that's what Jesus was experiencing. He was scrutinized. So he was threatened, he was ridiculed, he was hated, he was scrutinized, and Jesus was misunderstood. Verse 12, among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Now, I love this Greek word, whispering. It is, um, I hope I get this right for the junior and high school English teachers that are amongst us, but this is an example of onomatopoeia, okay? Or it's called an onomatopoeia poetic um, word here. And that is a word that sounds like what it is, okay? Like the word buzz. Everybody say buzz out loud with me. One, two, three, buzz, okay? It sounds like buzzing. It sounds like what it is. Well, this is the same thing translated here as whispering. It comes from the Greek word gogusmos, gogusmos. Would you say that out loud with me? Together, gogusmos. One more time, gogusmos. I'm gonna keep doing it till everybody says it. Ready, here we go. One, two, three, gogusmos. One more time, one, two, three, gogusmos. Now, I'm gonna make you do something even more embarrassing. Everybody say go gusmos over and over and over again. Ready? And I'm, I'm going to keep at it until we do it, so you might as well do it right off the bat. Ready? Go gusmos, go gusmos, go gusmos, go gusmos. You hear, hear how that sounds? It sounds like whispering. It sounds like muttering or murmuring. And so it says, among the crowds, there's widespread gusmos about him. Some said he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people, but no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Next page of your study outline. Opinions about Jesus. John 7, verse 20, he's demon-possessed. Verse 40, the prophet. Verse 41, the Messiah. Here's my favorite one. John 7, verse 46, I love this. The chief priests and the Pharisees send the temple guards to arrest Jesus, and they make a mistake of waiting for him to have a break in his sermon to arrest him. And they start listening to him. And then they go back. And the chief priests and the Pharisees said, where is he? We sent you to arrest him. And here's what they said. No one ever spoke the way this man does. They got converted. And then, you know, the leaders just hit the ceiling. You know, verse 47, he has deceived you. And they just go ballistic on that. But I just love that. They go to arrest him and then they stop and listen to him for a minute and they become followers of Jesus rather than arresters of Jesus. Verse 47, he's deceived you. Verse 48, you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed. Uh, verse 52, demon-possessed. Uh, chapter 10, verse 20, raving mad. These were all the things they were muttering, gogusmos, about Jesus. Now for the remainder of our time, let's talk about that when you are mistreated, how do you respond like Jesus? Uh, mayor Richard Daly was the mayor of Chicago from 1955 to 1976. And one of his speechwriters came in and demanded a raise. Mayor Daly could be difficult to work with, and he felt like he deserved a raise. 
Mayor Daley responded. He said, I'm not going to give you a raise. It should be enough for you that you are working for a great American hero like me. Two weeks later, Mayor Daley was giving a speech. Now, he was famous for not reading his speeches ahead of time and only reading them for the first time when he got up to deliver them. So there he stood before a vast throng of veterans and nationwide press coverage. He began to describe the plight of the veterans. I'm concerned for you. I have a heart for you. I'm deeply convinced that this country needs to take care of its veterans. So today, I am proposing a specific 17-point plan that includes the city, state, and federal government to care for the veterans of this country. Now, everyone's interested in what this 17-point plan is going to be. Mayor Daley is interested in what the 17-point plan is going to be. He turns the page over, and there's an almost blank page with these words, you're on your own now, you great American hero. Well, that's one way to respond when you're mistreated. But how do we respond like Jesus responded? Three things. Number one, ask the Father for the right words. Don't just say the first thing that comes into your mind. How many of you, the first thing that comes into your mind is usually not the best thing uh, to say? Um, and we'll put a picture of the temple up there. And Jesus is about to go into the temple, and now is the right time. He goes down uh, to Jerusalem, but even then it's not the right time. And so it's halfway through the festival, and now the green light, God says, go. Now's the perfect time. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts, and he begins to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? I mean, he's a carpenter. He doesn't have any formal rabbinical uh, training. Uh, how can he speak like this? He's never been to seminary. Here's the secret. John eight twenty eight. I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. And Jesus gives the same promise to us. He says, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Jesus, God says, if you will just give me a few seconds, I will share with you what you should share instead of what you immediately think, the first thing that comes into our minds. You know, the research shows that 80% of vehicle crashes, of car crashes, could be prevented with just one more second to react. 80% of car accidents could be done away with if we just had one more second to react. So give God a few seconds. Give him some time. Don't just say the first thing that comes to our mind, but ask him for the right words. Lord, would you help me? Would, would Jesus' words come through me? For I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the power of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus, would you say your words through me right now rather than the first thing that comes to mind? Second, find your identity in the Father. He says in verse 28, Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me and you know where I'm from. I'm not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Uh, Jesus reminds himself and them of his true identity when he's mistreated. He says, I know where I'm from. I'm here on the authority of the Father. I'm sent from the Father. I'm sent by the Father. Uh, Jesus just goes back to this again and again and again. And so let me just say, whenever people mistreat you, when any people say hurtful things to you, 
when, when people mistreat you, remember that your identity comes from your heavenly Father. It doesn't matter what people think about you. It matters what he thinks about you and who you are in him. You're here because God made you. You're here because God sent you. You're here because God redeemed you. And remember, when you are mistreated by others, remember your identity in the Father. It says in Romans 8, verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. And thirdly, entrust yourself to the Father. Are you being mistreated? Are you being hurt by anything here uh, today? Entrust yourself to the Father. 1 Peter 2, verse 23, when they hurled their insults at him, Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Entrust yourself to the Father when you're mistreated. Warren Weckler writes, revenge has no more quenching effect on emotions than salt water has on thirst. Revenge has no more quenching effect on emotions than salt water has on thirst. Somebody handed me this. Um, I get some of the best sermon illustrations on offering uh, envelopes uh, that people hand to me after the first service or second service. Having resentment in your heart is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Isn't that great? Having resentment in your heart is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Uh, Peter continues, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. Hebrews 2.14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. He wanted to share in your mistreatment so he could identify with you so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death that is the devil. Let's pray together. Lord, first of all, um, we are so grateful that you chose to identify with us and to go through mistreatment so that you could know everything that we go through. And if the world mistreated you because you uh, shone on their uh, evil ways with your light and you proclaimed yourself to be the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through you. If you claim to be God, then it will mistreat us who proclaim that message as well. And Lord, I pray for each person who may feel mistreated here this morning. I don't know what their hurt is, but you know what it is. And Lord, would you please help us to respond the way that you do and did? Lord, um, it's so easy just to say the first thing that comes to our mind, to retaliate, to hit back. But Lord, right now, with that situation where we're mistreated, we pause and we wait for your timing and your words and your way. And I pray that you will live your life through us this coming week, having your responses, not our responses, because we know that that's what draws people to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's family said, amen.